Welcome to Oh God, What Now, the politics podcast that is too woke to fight a war, but young enough to get conscripted. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and on today's show, it's been four years since the UK left the European Union. It's been terrible, frankly, but could things be about to get worse? And the Tories are rebelling yet again. How seriously should we be taking Conservative calls to get rid of Rishi Sunak? Now let's meet the panel. First up, Seth Tavo, a journalist, historian and author of Behind Closed Doors. Hello, Seth. Hello, hello. Seth, so the Iceland boss, Richard Walker, he's thrown his weight behind Keir Starmer. Excuse the pun, but it is intended. Is this the tip of the iceberg for (laughs) conservative-leaning business people shifting over that way? And should it be worrying the Tories quite a bit? There's been a shift underway for some time, which is that big donors have been coming back to Labour all throughout Keir Starmer's leadership. I mean, you get people like Sir David Garrard, for example, heavily donated millions during Blair and Miliband, left uh, during Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. I mean, he returned to Labour four years ago. Um, So there's been a bit of that, but it's not a zero-sum game. It's not that there are people who who have gone from Labour to the Tories and back again in any large numbers. There are two very different donor pools. Labour have a donor pool that sort of supplements their union income. And during the new Labour years, they were actually able to outraise the Tories really consistently and get more money because they had both sources coming in. Um, But the Tories have a very different pool of donors. And it's not just that they're not shifting towards Labour. They're bigger than they used to be. I mean, the entire... Tory big donor network used to be about 200 individuals. It's now close to about 650 individuals. And some of them are very, very rich. I mean, we're talking about billionaires here whose petty cash could basically buy the next election. So it's not something for Labour to be complacent about. And if you're looking at the donation patterns, certainly recently, for the last year or so, every month, the Conservatives are consistently outraising Labour by about a third. Are the optics maybe the thing that the Tories should worry about here, though, in that someone like Richard Walker, though people don't know him by name, an Iceland boss, and the way he's speaking about other people who shop at my stores, which I'm sure is a lot of people across the country, is it more that it actually it will cut through with the public in a way because it's a person who represents something that they know and they engage with? I think if you're a party representing the poor against the rich, there is an optics problem if you're dependent on big money donations. And that's less bad if you're actually dealing with somebody who does something quite innocuous and quite pleasant, like running an accessible, affordable supermarket like Mm. Iceland. They're not hedge fund entrepreneurs. Mm. Then making up this very testosterone-filled panel today, we've got <laughs> we've got actor, political commentator, and broadcaster Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. We must have meeting like this. <laughs> Alex, so there are reports which su- suggest the EU could sabotage Hungary's economy in some way, but this is also as Viktor Orban is being accused of blackmailing the bloc over funding to Ukraine. What's going on there, and how is this going to play out for Viktor Orban? Viktor Orban is blackmailing the bloc with regard to aid to Ukraine. That's what's going on there. (laughs) Um, Although, uh, I have to say, today, Monday, as we record, um, there have been some developments on that front. So the Hungarian foreign minister um, is visiting Ukraine today. And at the same time, uh, there was a line coming out of Budapest that it had shifted its position on using the EU budget for Ukraine aid, that they would be okay with it, even financing it with uh, common debt. They've put some more caveats in there, um, uh, you know, giving it its, the opportunity to change its mind, withdraw later if it wants to, etc. And of course, we don't know what it's asked in exchange, but all this is because we were 
genuinely heading for an Article 7 situation. And perhaps it, 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 listeners would like if I explained very briefly what that is. So we know painfully uh, that a country can withdraw from the EU. Um, that's Article 50. What a terrible idea. Uh, listen, that. I know. <laughs> the problem is that there is no reverse provision. There's no way of throwing a country out of the EU. None. Um, the closest there is is Article 7 of the Treaty of uh, on European Union, which is a procedure to suspend certain rights from a member, including the right to vote in uh, uh, EU Council votes, and um, it can even extend to uh, free market, to free movement, stuff like that. Article 7 can be applied if a country, and I'm reading here, seriously and persistently breaches the principles on which the EU is founded as defined in Article 2, and that includes respect for human dignity, freedom, democracy, equality, the rule of law, and respect for fundamental rights, including the rights of minorities. Now, I think Hungary's absolutely slap bang in the middle of infringing precisely those values, and it would uh, be in trouble if the EU decided to move against it. So we're in that situation where Hungary, I think, is reading the writing on the wall and is backing off a little bit. But ultimately, I think we are heading down that road if Hungary persists in pulling this kind of stunt because um, there's a lot of very unhappy people around the European Union. The problem at a basic level is if you do that, you're punishing the people of Hungary rather than Orban. Mm. And people who are being punished tend to react by moving further to the right, further towards nationalism. So it's a really difficult, difficult juggling exercise. January 31st will mark four years exactly since the UK left the European Union. We've experienced everything bad we knew would come with Brexit without any of what was promised to be good. Who'd have guessed that might be the case? And it is potentially about to get worse. Alex, we spoke a little bit about this already on Start Your Week, about the, the new import mm. regulations. As well as crushing small businesses in the way this will, is it also just just unworkable because of, well, we just don't have enough vets or people to actually fulfill these regulations we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, look, they're not unworkable in that businesses will find a way to work them. But the government has, as usual, just absented itself from doing anything about it. They're just introducing them after postponing them five times and have said to business, you work it out. And this is what they've done with everything around Brexit, right? They've better tested it, basically, on people's lives and people's livelihoods. They've just put it out there, and if it doesn't work, then they will very slowly and very badly rectify it over the next few years. And if your business has, you know, gone tits up, too bad. So, again, that's what they're doing. They're just introducing um, the, uh, the new border. I, yeah. I, I said it this morning. <laughs> it was a source of great mirth. I'll say it again. It's the border target operating model, bottom for short. Does it feel almost like a kind of extension of the big society mindset where people and businesses should do more things, but they've they've forgotten the part of maybe actually caring very much about society for this no. to, to work? No. Right? 
because the the whole point about all that kind of stuff, the compassionate conservatism, big society camera and stuff, is that the state wants to minimize its involvement. Yeah. But actually, the minimum involvement of the state is to create an environment within which private enterprise can do this stuff. Yeah. And that is the one thing that government hasn't done with Brexit. Mm. It's just farted out new rules, burped out new regulations, abolished laws without knowing what the, the, the effect will be two steps down the line, and gone, well, if it's a problem, you'll let us know, won't you? Mm. That is actually a profoundly unconservative way yeah. of running a government, if nothing else. Mm. Well, Politico's headline I saw today was, Britain's Brexit border is finally here, no one is happy. Should we, <laughs> do we stop the podcast there? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. The Institute of Experts in International Trade has, has done a lot of work on this, and they've been picking up huge anxiety. Like over 50% of businesses involved with this sector are incredibly anxious about what's going on, but there is a decrease in preparedness, which I find quite interesting. It's like you reach a level of anxiety where you become paralyzed. Don't, don't people know that the government's on WhatsApp now? <laughs> <laughs> and like literally everyone I know, I think, assumed there would be another delay yeah. because they were saying to do this while inflation is still high and marginally coming down. And while the economy is recovering and, you know, everything is very, very fragile and people are struggling with their bills. So to add this cost onto everything would be madness. So they've delayed it five times. Of course, they d they'll delay it one more, but they haven't. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, is it just because Sunak and his government are kind of, they've done so, for so long they've put stuff off that they're also in a bit of a feeling of when they actually get the chance to do something, they feel like they, they have to at the moment. Because he created a weird circumstance for himself where it's he really doesn't want to put stuff off because he just looks cowardly or like he just can't get stuff done. So this is actually, I though bad, might be an opportunity to show, well, I'm, maybe, I'm doing something. Maybe my guess is that this is Badenoch. Okay. That, that is like, I don't care, not letting it slide anymore, not letting the deadline slip anymore. You know, she's neither in charge at the moment. She's sitting pretty for a potential leadership election. She it's says all, she doesn't want it's that. It's all Alex. going to <laughs> shit. If it goes to shit by, you know, 0.5% more, what does she care? Actually, we'll stand her in good stead as a Brexiteer that, you know, everyone else kept postponing the deadline for imposing those checks. But I'm the one that brought it in. Looking down the line, are there more things that you're worried about that are coming up when it comes to this kind of red tape that's happening. This medicines, is the, the tip of the medicines, iceberg. medicines, medicines. I mean, the shortages are a ticking bomb. It, it's incredible how little the government is doing about it. It's incredible how little coverage is getting. We are experiencing a record level of drug shortages with more than 100, um, uh, including treatments for cancer, type 2 diabetes, and motor neuron disease either scarce or impossible to obtain. I have experienced this personally. My other half has an anti-anxiety medication that we've had to travel in concentric circles wider and wider mm. to try and get it. And this is a prescribed drug for anxiety, for yeah. fuck's sake. Now, this has nothing to do with Brexit, right? But here is where it becomes everything to do with Brexit. 
because these shortages are global, the EU is taking action. The European Medicines Agency is is basically going to start acting as a monopsony. They're going to buy these vital 200 drugs that they've identified for all their member states and stockpile them to make sure they don't run out. And as the Nuffield Trust has said, there is a risk that when there are shortages in a large neighbor who is now a separate market because of Brexit decides we're going to take action on this and we don't, these things will become even more scarce. And they include antibiotics, by the way, which are also becoming very difficult mm. to get. So just project the kind of scenario that can lead to. Seth, on the subject of shortages, there's the, the food issue is obviously a big thing there. What's going on with the, the row over beef and cheese imports with, with Canada? So it's halted a trade deal there, which was in the works for, for yep. two years. How big of a blow to the government is this? And to, to us, how big of a blow is this? Pretty big, but also very predictable. Um, I mean, just for context, <laughs> we, we've had 71 trade deals since Brexit, but 68 of the 71 are actually just rollovers of the existing agreements that were in place um, with the EU. Uh, Canada is one of those. I mean, it's, it's, it's not in a select category, but it's in a category where it was up for ongoing immediate renegotiation. You know, Mexico, Chile, Peru, they're all in the same boat. Um, and where we were was that uh, we already had those talks actually collapsed last year after eight rounds. They'd started them again and they've collapsed yet again. Um, the big sticking issue is around hormone-filled beef. Canadian farmers are lobbying quite strongly to be able to sell hormone-fed beef uh, in the UK. Hormone-fed beef has been the subject of an EU ban. And so we are, funnily enough, <laughs> trying to stick to EU standards, which makes us ask what the point of leaving the EU was in the first place. Um, this has had quite far-reaching implications just in terms of the existing collapse and the uh, failure to, uh, to reach agreement on um, an existing rollover to be renewed. So you've had uh, UK cheese farmers who've already lost their preferential market access, which they had before as a result of this existing spat on beef. Um, you've had things like uh, the car industry has been hit by the instability. Basically, anyone who's in export is going to feel the impact of this in some way because it's not an insignificant market, Canada. So there were 68 rollover deals you mentioned yep. there, but there are three new trade deals secured yeah. since Brexit. Free. Yeah. You, you're going to have to tell me they're really, really good, aren't they? They've been brilliant <laughs> blockbuster deals. I Go mean, on, Steph. You know you want to. <laughs> as far as I can tell, the Japanese one seems okay-ish. It was described as historical at the time. <laughs> yeah. The um, the Australian New Zealand one is dire. I mean, if you look at the uh, the predictions around it and the sort of forecasts, it basically involves, uh, I think it's 0% of tariffs applying to Australia, but 99.5% <laughs> applied to the UK. So there are all sorts of forecasts around being flooded by Australian imports. Good. There are lots of good quality products from Australia, yeah. but there's no flooding of the Australian market to sort of balance it out. Right. So... Um, all the things that it said it's supposed to do, distinctly lacking. Alex, David Cameron got brought back and it was quite surprising. He seems to me like a very high emission sticking plaster for the UK when it comes to our relationships around the world. Have we just got terrible at diplomacy and negotiating? And even with bringing in the the cavalry as they have, is everyone on a on an uphill battle to do any of that? Yeah, please? because it's a skill. Yeah. Right. It's a thing that people learn and get better at and senior at, and we don't have any of it. I remember Oliver Letwin 
um, cabinet minister at the time saying in 2016 that we don't have a single trade negotiator mm -hmm. because basically all of that is done at EU level. So he was saying, you're going to have to go out and recruit people and it's not going to be easy because right around the time when we're making it difficult for foreign people to come and work here, we'll be going out saying, oh, please come and work here. Um, and no one took it seriously. And not we only were, come and work here, come and work here and say how great Britain yeah, is, yeah, even though we've yeah. kind of said we it's, don't want exactly. you, then begged you and, to come. You know, and everyone went, Project Fear! Um, <laughs> well, you know, but we're, we are seeing the fruits of that. You know, what happened to the deal with the US? Hmm. Where is that? Um, CPTPP, oh, by the way, this, this passed largely under the radar. So CPTPP was predicted... Um, to benefit the UK, this was the government's estimate, by up to 1%. I love that. It's nice and vague. Anything up to 1% of GDP. Well, the OBR came out with its projection um, attached to the autumn statement that Hunt made. And because there was loads of stuff going on, obviously, at the time, this really passed under the radar. So they predict that the CPTPP will add to the UK economy in the long term, a magnificent, drumroll, 0.04%. Let me repeat <laughs> that for you, 0.04%. Uh, I think that's Brexit. also exactly the cost of a Downing Street party during <laughs> lockdown. <laughs> but like contrast that with the 4% that they say we've lost permanently from the economy because of Brexit. And where's the deal with India? Th yeah. This was promised by by Diwali 2022 by Liz Truss and then by Diwali 2023 by Rishi Sunak. Are we going to have to wait for Diwali this year yeah. for anything to happen? <laughs> they are now in their 14th round of negotiations. Maybe they're saving it for the anniversary of Brexit. Actually, maybe it will be in a couple of days' time, but... Oh. Or maybe, as I'm hearing it, it contains quite generous visa provisions and the government is basically shitting itself about putting something out that will result in an increase to immigration at a time when they know reform mm. will pounce on mm. it. Seth, Alex mentioned Kemi Badnock earlier on. So she's weighed in on the I'm Brexit sorry. debate. Yeah. Yeah. I know we're not allowed to swear. <laughs> yeah, you've got to put a pound in the jar, please. But what is it that she is actually suggesting Sunak should be doing differently? Uh, she's been arguing for greater divergence from the EU so that we can get more of a Brexit benefit. Uh, same old theme. Um, what that means in practice is that she would like to see us end the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice over our trade decisions, amongst other things. This has, of course, as our uh, listeners will be only too aware, nothing to do with the EU whatsoever, but it is a keen campaigning drumroll platform within the Conservative Party. Basically, it's, it's about trying to flog the anti-European horse as much as possible. Um, it's got European in the name, basically. Yeah. But it, it, it doesn't actually seem to be grounded in any demand here. The European Court of Justice is not likely to wade in, for example, on the Canada deal or absence of a deal. Um, it, it just doesn't enter into it. No. Alex, also on this, in terms of Northern Ireland, does it just feel like the Brexiteers continually seem to forget or just want to pretend like they didn't ignore how difficult this situation would make the circumstances for Northern Ireland mm. in a lot of ways. 
Well, I mean, the, <laughs> the irony is that the Brexit deal can work brilliantly for Northern Ireland, just not the unionists. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, Northern Ireland, if it decided to embrace that dual status, that one foot in both camps um, status, it could make an absolute killing in terms of investment and stimulating its own its own microeconomy. But, um, I mean, I again, I remember... Um, maybe three, four days before the vote. It wasn't more than that. It was certainly June 2016. John Major, Tony Blair, joint visit to um, Northern Ireland, made a speech in which John Major said that Brexit has the potential to um, upset the delicate underpinnings of the Good Friday Agreement. And he was jumped on by every... By every single person, the the Northern Ireland Secretary, Theresa Villiers, uh, the entire complement of DUP people, um, who basically called them desperate and fear-mongering and sad to see them squander the statementship, you know, for this sort of thing and nothing of the kind would happen. And, you know, it was like that. And then Brexit went through and... Northern Ireland quite predictably became the thing that caused the most difficulty because <laughs> the Good Friday Agreement is underpinned by a membership of the European Union. Mm -hmm. It talks about an all-island economy. Finally, on this section, Alex, I'm going to ring the, the balance klaxon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Where does Labour stand on Brexit at the moment and what are people making of Labour's plans? Not much. No. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think they've engineered themselves into a brilliant situation, actually. Like, we're hearing a lot of top-level things like renegotiating a closer relationship and, you know, they are our partners, we need to be doing uh, a better deals with them. And then at cabinet, shadow minister level, you have people like Nick Thomas-Simmons who have absolute command of the details and quite a detailed plan of what aspects they want to renegotiate on day one, like veterinary agreements, would make the whole thing just go away. You know, the whole thing about import-export um, certificates. A and so I think the important thing is that it is not an election issue. They are managing to create space for themselves to do quite a lot of stuff remembering that we need the EU's cooperation. And they're doing it without getting any adverse headlines, without getting the express screeching that, you know, it's betrayal and Brexit reversal and all of that, which I think is the sweet spot. They need to leave themselves the space to renegotiate a lot of this stuff as technical trade stuff that doesn't concern anyone, <laughs> you know, rather than front page, we love Europe stuff. And that's where they are. I think the, the, their policy on this has been spot on. Next up this week, it's time to pick our heroes and villains. So, Seth, let's start off first with your hero. 
E. Jean Carroll, who successfully okay. sued Donald Trump for defamation, it's been a five-year legal battle she's been fighting. She started actually when he was in the White House. Um, and not only has she won the first case last year in terms of uh, deeming that it happened and that Trump is civilly liable, but she won an $83.3 million yeah. uh, ruling against him for defamation. And this is somebody who kept saying during the trials itself, whilst he was being sued for defamation, he continued to defame her outside the courtroom day after day. So it's a really strong signal for Trump. Now, she's not going to get that money anytime soon because he's indicated he intends to um, appeal. So it's going to go into an escrow account. However, if he wants to appeal, he's first got to pay the $83.3 million. And, uh, you know, however much Trump might claim he's a billionaire on paper and so on, I don't even know whether he has $83.3 million to spare. We might see Mar-a-Lago on Zoopla sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's just your pick for hero. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> you didn't specify. <laughs> what about villain? Uh, there was that weird Boris Johnson article arguing for conscription, saying that he would uh, be happy to sign up as a lance corporal. Although, as some people have pointed out, he didn't specify which army. <laughs> Alex, who's your who's your hero? Let's go for that first. And interestingly, I'm also going Trump side. Mm, okay. And my hero of the week is Nikki, Nikki Haley, mm -hmm. because I think what she's doing is actually quite brave. Um, you know, considering the abuse she's taken, considering I would imagine the security threat to her and her family, personally, um, which can't be negligible. So. She's putting everything on the line, knowing she's not going to win the nomination, because I think that's how, you know, it's looked from the start. And yet she's doing it because she's unwilling to just leave the GOP to Trump. What about your villain? Harry from the Traitors. <laughs> that smug little... Don't hold back, Alex. Tell us what you Can really I... think. So this is what upsets me, okay? He goes, it's just a game. Sure. It doesn't make him a bad guy. Hmm. Hold on, okay? Because you applied for the game, knowing that it involves deception. You lied to loads of people around you. So you can't continue to believe that doesn't make you a bad guy. Because um, you went into that game knowing what it involved. You played it very well, and you got you know, 95 grand or however much it was. And I hope you can cuddle that at night and sleep well. And as anyone who's ever had a family argument over Monopoly knows, you learn a lot about people from how they play games. <laughs> I was once accused of monopolizing Monopoly, which was my favorite thing that anyone has been outraged at me for doing ever, yeah. monopolizing Monopoly. I just thought, well, yeah, that's the that's the game. Well, I'm sorry to to say, Alex, I haven't watched The Traitors, so that's not going to... It's not on my not on my registers there, so it's it's going to be a clean sweep for for Seth on both of those. I think e. Jean Carroll has just been through a horrible time, which must have been very very awful there. And Boris Johnson, if I can pick him to be villain, impetuity. He's, he's the kind he's, of bloke who probably uh, cheats at. What am I saying? Probably he would absolutely cheat at Monopoly yeah. oh, no, every but, time. But that that yeah. is the point, yeah. isn't yeah. it? I've just had enough yeah. of fucking cheaters, actually. <laughs> I cheat at Monopoly, sorry. <laughs> Awful.
Next up, guess who's at it again? That's right, of course, it's the Tories. So wannabe Tory grandee and Seth Tavo lookalike, Simon Clark, who is the MP for Middlesbrough South and East Cleveland, hit the headlines last week when he called for Rishi Sunak to resign immediately in an article published in The Telegraph. He argued that unless the Prime Minister is replaced, his party would be massacred at the next election. And following that, Will Dry, no, me neither, a former advisor to Sunak, also called for change. Alex, how seriously should we be taking this micro-rebellion, as I'd like to call it? Very seriously. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I know that's not what you expected. I see people saying, surely not. And all I can think is, have you missed the last three fucking years? (laughs) If the polls continue to refuse to budge, there is a large number of MPs facing absolute certain oblivion, okay? And it's important to analyze this at MP level because if you are facing certain defeat, why would you not have another roll of the dice? Mm. You know, because it might cause a party embarrassment, because mm. it might result in an even worse defeat. Who cares? It means nothing to you. It's not like you can use, lose your seat twice. I suppose my thoughts <laughs> on, the, uh, on the seriousness, though, uh, is it how seriously should we take the people at the moment been put in the spotlight around the Very seriously. Them as well, really. Very, I should be very, taking Simon Clark very, very seriously. Very seriously. Simon <laughs> Clark is not acting on his own. No. Simon Clark is acting in concert with Lord Frost, who's got some billionaire backers behind him. You know, so there is a concerted move. It might not be the one that results in toppling him, but certainly you cannot ignore it because... Like I said, you know, there's 150 MPs facing certain defeat. Via what game theory does one think that they can go into a party that recruits on the basis of selfishness and fosters selfishness and say, you 150 guys, you take one for the team now? Yeah. It ain't going to happen. The only way Sunak will get to an election is if he calls it early. The only way, if he tries to stay the course, they will get rid of him in the summer. Even with the the self-interest roll of the dice theory, which I do, I, I agree with that, that it kind of makes sense on that level. But what doesn't make sense, would anyone new actually give them any hope? It would be a monumental change they would have to mount from where they're at now. Anyone would be better than Sunak. But better than absolutely fucked. Anyone would be better than Sunak in that at least they could go to the voting public and say, give me a chance to see what I can do. Mm. Even that is a better pitch than this idiocy of saying, stick with me for change. Mm. I am both continuity and change. Mm. And I'm going to get really amazing stuff done like banning vapes, which we were discussing before the podcast. Sure. And I was mm. saying that that is like a junior health minister's announcement. That is not something a prime minister of a country that is on fire on several fronts, involved with two wars, economy flagging. You know, a, a prime minister of that country does not spend an entire day launching a measure about banning disposable vapes. Well, it's soon now creating this space for this argument to be happening because the, the papers and the media kind of want these storylines, don't they? I saw Will Dry being referred to as a sort of 
little Cummings and stuff like that. And they want these, they want those narrative threads. So while Sunak's trying to be quite boring, it feels to take some flack away from him. Is it, he, he's leaving this space, isn't he? Because as you say, talking about vapes and doing stuff like apparently he fasts for 36 hours a week and giving interviews about it, is just encouraging political reporters to go, well, give us something actually vaguely interesting to write about. So all these other people wanting to make moves are just... Yeah, I mean, sure, yes, there is an audience for it, but <laughs> I I have to kick back at the suggestion that it's reporters who are the the prime movers of mm. the current, um, you know, ructions within the Tory yeah. party. The Tory party is addicted to chaos. It knows no other way anymore. It has no policy ideas. It has no policy platform. All it knows is the excitement of getting in front of a camera and going, he should resign and my guy or my girl should be prime minister. That's all it's done for three years. It is all it knows. They are reality show contestants trying to make the most compelling, you know, diary uh, confession so that they get on the highlight show. That's what they all are right now. Mm. It's just an empty shell of a thing that used to be there, just waiting to die and be crushed <laughs> and maybe then be reborn into something useful. Yeah. Seth, obviously some of this does feel like a, a particularly almost modern version of the Tory party, but are they also failing to take lessons from the from the past? Are they repeating past mistakes here in this? Um, I mean, there's a strong case that the Tories started to become less able to govern effectively when they discovered ideology over flexibility. You know, they used to be the party of power, the party of flexibility, the party that would make compromises, however unpalatable and unpleasant, just to do what uh, it was necessary to remain in office. Once Thatcher gave them this sort of economic doctrine that they obsess over and this obsession with doing the right thing as we see it, that suddenly takes you into a very different territory and it sort of sobbed the economy as a result of that. Um, <laughs> I do wonder also about, I mean, uh, Alex was talking about, uh, you know, this preoccupation with highlights and wanting to make it that way. And Tim Bale writes a lot about the conservative ecosystem, that there are certain institutions like The Spectator, The Telegraph, GB News, these are not officially part of the Conservative Party, and yet they are utterly integral mm. to opinion forming in the Conservative Party. I mean, I put leading Conservative think tanks in the same sort of box. And they are the ones who give us a disproportionate amount of attention on someone like Liz Truss or Kemi Badenoch or Simon Clark. Um, I look forward dearly to a time within a year when no one will care who Simon Clark is again or what he has to say on any issue. But until then, we're stuck with it with a sort of heavy trail, a senior former cabinet heavyweight is about to wade in. And you're thinking, oh, it's going to be someone interesting. It's who? Oh, oh, it's bloody hell, it's that guy I look like. Um, <laughs> Pretty much everyone is a minister or former cabinet minister in the Conservative Party yeah, at this point, aren't well, they? Well, there's really? that too, yeah. yes. Um, <laughs> Alex, it, does it feel as well like they're just trying to use all the same lines that they used? So the Starmer-Blair comparison, I think, is somewhat overused quite often. But in this instance, they're, they're really using the exact same lines they tried against Blair. Did you see that Blair. video they put out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. trying the exact same there's lines no, against Blair. There's no enthusiasm out there for Tony Blair. I just loved seeing that <laughs> from the 1996 good, yeah. election. It was like, it, it, and it's exactly what they're saying. Um, 
And it is supported by quite a lot of polling. Um, but in my mind, that's quite a superficial reading of both the data and actually politics, what it is and what it should be. You know, when Laura Kunzberg turns around and says, there's no love out there for Keir Starmer, it's like, why should there be love no. for a politician on the base basis of just promises? Why would that be a healthy country to live in? You know, there should be only possibly respect on the basis of delivery. But in my mind, a besotted um, uh, electorate chooses Brexit. A seduced electorate cho chooses Johnson. A skeptical electorate, a suspicious electorate, I think will be much better at keeping Starmer honest. I look forward to it. I look forward to him feeling that he has a limited time to make impact, you know, to introduce policies that actually do stuff that make people feel better in their everyday life. Because that's what the fucking job is, or it should be. It shouldn't be about wanting to go down the pub with them, which was someone also said on Sunday in, in response to that poll. Well, he's not someone I would like to go to the pub with. Who cares? No. Yeah. Is that the criterion of, of who you choose to run the country, to have the nuclear codes? Oh, I'd like to go to the pub with him. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't like to go to the pub with my GP very much, but no, I, I trust well, yeah. him pretty much yeah. to, I mean, to look after me. I mean, who chooses a pilot? on the basis that he's a laugh <laughs> and I'd like to go down the pub with him. No one, no one chooses a pilot that way. You want a pilot that knows what they're doing, is quite serious, quite dull, is unlikely to have gone to the pub the yeah. night before and will get you safely from A to B. And I think that's what politics should be. It mm. shouldn't be some kind of popularity contest. Mm. Asunak has got plenty of enemies within Westminster, but there is this this matter of 40... Why am I getting so angry today? I'm so angry today. I d is it, it the vaping It really ban? crept up on... No, it just crept up on me, man. I, I didn't know it was there, and I'm just yeah. angry right now. No, no, I mean, I think it's... If there's any time to be angry at Sorry, the moment... it's is probably the Brexit anniversary, you know, subconsciously. It stirred things the, the up. Brexit full moon outside of some kind. So there's obviously... Plenty of enemies within Westminster, and there are 40 Conservative MPs threatening to rebel over a lack of funding for councils, which uh, many of which are on the brink of bankruptcy. But this is also showing that Sunak could be about to get even more problems and more serious figures from outside of Westminster spreading across. The people who want to move against Sunak are going to spread much wider. I think there's going to be it. a deal on councils. As a matter of fact, I already have heard it being trailed. I think they're going to chuck some money their way to see them at least through the next six months, yeah. you know, just over the election ridge. And then it's someone else's problem. But I don't think that will be allowed to get out of control because then, then we're talking about, you know, the Conservatives coming forth in the election. We, we're in that kind of territory. So they're going to do a payday loan for councils, essentially. Yeah, basically. For fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> so for... Yeah, one plan that has uh, that has come to light throughout all this, which feels somewhat sensible, but a little bit strange. Sensible in terms of Tory world, sensible. Let me let me contextualise that. But is this this contract with Britain, which could oh, seek to replace Sunak and install Penny Mordaunt as PM, and then hold an election within one hundred days? Where have they nicked this idea from, and is it in any way realistic? 
I mean, this is very much from the playbook of the contract with America with which the Republicans seized the House and the Senate in the 1994 midterms under Newt Gingrich. No one actually seems to remember any of the substantive policies that were in the contract with America. What it really was about was the transformation of the Republican Party into an intransigent force. You know, this is the point at which impeachment of the president of another party comes about just because we don't like him rather than anything substantial. This is where the whole Whitewater and Monica Lewinsky uh, council stuff starts to come out. Um, how does it translate to Britain? Well, not very. And I'm bringing this up because the issues are so irrelevant. It really is just desperation. I mean, it's flailing around the last minute stuff. So I know you recorded a bunker with Andrew talking about how politicians never really know when to quit or how to quit properly. We've obviously been speaking about people wanting to get rid of Sunak, but would he be wise for all sorts of reasons to either call an election or, or, or quit himself from this? It just seems like I don't understand what is continuing to be in this for him except varying degrees of monumental defeat with also having made himself look like a horrible person who doesn't have a sort of central ideology that makes sense. Well, there, there are a number of cynical takes on this, and one might be that he sees himself as a future tech bro, and there are rumours of a Sunak yeah. Institute at Stanford being fundraised for, and that he, uh, you know, is already, now that he's got the CEO gig on the CV, he's sort of, sort of got an eye ahead to the next job, at which point you might think, well, actually, what's the point of his even being there? I will take a slightly different t take on this from Alex. I actually don't... I mean, I, I, where we agree on Sunak is that he is completely useless, but I could see things actually being even worse. I mean, if someone like Kemi Badenoch were Tory leader right now, implementing trust policies Mark II, I could actually see things being even more catastrophic. I, I agree. No, you misunderstand my point. Right. I agree completely with that. But for the individual MP who is certain to lose yeah. their seat, they won't be oh, worse. Yeah, yeah. They will be exactly the same. So... They risk nothing by, by taking that extra throw of the dice. It might be worse for an MP who was just about going to keep their seat and will now lose it, yep. to which I think the MP who is bound to lose their seat will go, good! <laughs> the, the point, <laughs> Misery loves company. <laughs> the point with Sunak is that he's failing to cut through anything he does, and occasionally he'll try and proactively do something, and it's amazing how bad it is. <laughs> I mean, he has his five points, which is, it, it's wonderful just how transparent it is because we know he's either going to campaign on all five of these points or one or two of them. Um, and so, yes, might, we might have a stop the boat selection, but some of this isn't actually great. I mean, you know, there's a promise to halve inflation. Well, that may happen anyway, so they won't necessarily get any credit even if it happens. Um, there's a plan to lower NHS waiting lists. Well, that's great. But again, people might not connect it with them. And they might say, well, what about the last 13 years of them growing before that? How did we get to where we are now? Uh, there's a pledge to grow the economy. Well, that's very good. But, you know, how does that feel as a cut through, especially after the last 13 years? And there's a pledge to cut national debt. And I'm sure everybody, if you poll them, is in favour of cutting national debt in theory. But who cares, actually, genuinely, David? And who actually follows the quarterly figures? And aside from a small number of political insiders like us looking at this stuff, most people will shrug and say, well, I'm worried about the local school. I'm worried about the health service. Um, and this thing about stop the boats, the fifth point, uh, it's, it's of enormous importance to about 3% of the electorate. Thank you.
We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. What cultural caves have we been spelunking into this week? Alex, what are your escape routes? Um, so I did. Uh, I read a book and did an interview on a bunker on it, um, which I think is out in about a week's time. Uh, the book is called How We Break, Navigating the Wear and Tear of Living. It's written by Vincent Deary, who is a, a psychologist with a lot of quite fresh ideas. Um, and I found it um, really POV shifting. The central concept is that we are all several steps away from breaking, basically. Some people further away, some people closer, but all of us have our limit, basically. And the idea is to identify when you need rest, to stop valuing busyness and, you know, get a, a, an accurate assessment of what load you can bear instead of judging that maybe whether people around you or at work or what your employer wants from you or, you know, just look inside and see how much load you can take and refuse to take beyond that because once you break the process of unbreaking is a lot harder as it were so the the phrase that sticks in my head is rest before you need rest if you come to the point when you need rest it's already too late um and i i loved it i recommend it highly i recommend the interview um, to everyone, look out for it on the bunker. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. Look forward to listening into that. Uh, Seth, what was yours? Last week I saw a fantastic play, uh, The Motive and the Queue, which I really recommend seeing. It's running in London until the 23rd of March. Um, if you're not familiar with it, uh, what it's about is that in 1964, Richard Burton is at the height of his fame as a film actor, and he's cast as Hamlet on Broadway. And to direct him, they get John Gilgood, who, you know, 30 years earlier had been the Hamlet of the stage. But Gilgood's career is very much on skids. And you have two huge egos who are absolutely convinced that they know how it's done and are clashing through all of this. The performances are amazing. Um, Tuppence Middleton is fantastic as Elizabeth Taylor. She's got the mannerism perfectly and brings across, you know, how impossible it is being married to an alcoholic like Richard Burton. Um, Johnny Flynn and Mark Gatiss are uncanny as Gilgood and Burton. I mean, I would say you could, if you close your eyes, it could be them, but actually they get the physical mannerisms so perfectly, you watch them as you're listening Mark to them. Mark Gatiss as Gilgood. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm imagining... Sorry, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry I was yes. trying to imagine Mark and, Gatiss as And as it's, uh, it's directed by Sam Mendes, and it's a really, nice. really good night out at the theatre. It's about the nature of theatre. It's why we do stage shows. It's very sympathetic to them as individuals. It looks at Burton's troubled childhood. It looks at uh, Gilgood's um, homosexuality and how he deals with that on the stage. It's really a very personal play and it's really one of the most exciting nights out in the theatre I've had in a while. Nice. Well, I'm trying to kick the trend of men getting older and not reading fiction by forcing myself to read loads of fiction at the moment. Uh, I've been reading Jailbird by Kurt Vonnegut. And I'm currently reading Norwegian Wood by Murakami, which I am enjoying, but also feels quite long for a book where not a lot is really happening. So I, uh, yeah, yeah I see, book. I see how I do. I'm, I'm really enjoying yeah. it, but I also just clocked the other day. I was like, I've got 200 pages left. 
how. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I'm hoping it, it contains, hoping it I think, off. one of my favorite quotes of all time. If you didn't understand it without an explanation, you won't understand it with an explanation. <laughs> yeah, it's full of sort of those little, yeah, very sweet sentimental bits, which just keep me, have kept me going Good. throughout it, for sure. All right, and that brings us to the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you to you, Alex Andreu. My pleasure. And thank you to Seth Tavo. Thank you. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Thursday for our backers and Friday morning for everyone else. I've been Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for listening to Oh God, What Now? See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Jacob Jarvis with Seth Tavo and Alex Andreu. The producers, Chris Jones, audio production by Robin Lieber, Socials by Jess Harpin and Kieran Leslie. And art by Jim Parrott. Group editors Andrew Harrison and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production.